It's the 365 Days of Astronomy podcast. Coming in three, two, one. Astronomy Cast, episode 572 Twists in Planet Formation. Welcome to Astronomy Cast, our weekly facts based journey through the cosmos where we help you understand not only what we know, but how we know what we know. I'm Fraser Kane, publisher of Universe Today. With me, as always, is Dr. Pamela Gay, a senior scientist for the Planetary Science Institute and the director of CosmoQuest. Hey, Pamela, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you doing on this fine spring day? I'm, I'm doing great. The weather's beautiful. Uh, it's perfect. Although we get these snow drifts of cottonwood. So oh, it's like, oh, yeah, we're getting that too. Like yeah. a giant fist-sized blobule of multiple. Yeah. yeah. Is it allergies if like a big wad of cottonwood goes into your lungs and you cough it back out like or if it just like sticks in your eyes is 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 that an allergy it feels like like really extreme allergy when you actually have like seeds stuck in your eye because you've been walking around outside so yeah that's springtime cottonwood regular allergies plus i don't know enormous allergies so but we'll get through that and then into summer i can't wait Um, So we're all looking to the next generation of exoplanetary research where we get to see planets directly. But astronomers are already making great strides in directly observing newly forming planets. Help us understand how our solar system might have formed. And I think you picked this episode because you saw the pictures from the European Southern Observatory and just said, yes, please. Let's talk about that. Pretty much. (laughs) And I have to admit that the timing of this just seems right, because with the Atacama Large Millimeter Array, they have been finding uh, successively more detailed information on how planets are forming, where they're forming, and their techniques for processing the data is getting better and better, so that they've gone from simply being able to say, this giant disk around this distant star has gaps in it that we assume have planets, to being able to say, this really ugly mess of a forming disk has eddies in it, and those eddies are forming worlds. So let's let's talk a bit about, just about the like the process of planetary formation and sort of so, so how... Up until this point, we expect it should look over time. Now, I, I'm going to put the caveat at the beginning of this discussion that if anyone tells you they know with certainty how planets form in a solar system, yeah, they're, they're lying to you. I, we I, have... I believe I said the word should, but, yeah. you know, yeah. So yeah. How, how the current theories say... But I mean, that's the amazing, that's the magic of this, of these images is now suddenly you're able to compare the current theories to the ground truth, the space truth. So, um, so what is the theory on how this is supposed to work? Okay, so start to finish, we we are finding from detailed observations of star forming regions, collapsing molecular clouds, that In the heart, the dense core of these collapsing systems where stars are forming rapidly, you don't get planets. So in order to get planets, you have to first of all start out with a star forming on the outskirts of its molecular cloud. 
It will be on the outer parts of what will eventually become an open cluster, like the ones that we observe out in the sky on a regular basis. Now, the reason for this is simple. On the inside, you have gravity from everything else, confusing matters, slurping material from one thing to another. You have radiation pressure from all these stars turning on. All these combined factors, it's just a chaotic mess, and planets can't find stable material to form out of in these kinds of systems. Right. So you want to start out in the burbs or right, in the rural right. areas. Yeah, you don't want to be near a bunch of really hot stars that are just blasting with their radiation clearing out. In fact, some research just came out this week talking about this, which I think is what you're you're, yeah. you're bringing to the conversation. But yeah, so outskirts, you've got clouds of gas and dust. They start to collapse down and you get a spinny blob. So, so as this fragment of a molecular cloud starts to collapse down, forming what is called either a propylid or a cocoon, the system flattens over time and begins spinning. Think pizza dough. You have a big blob of dough initially. You start it spinning, and it's going to flatten out. Now, within that flattening blob of material, you can end up, first of all, with things colliding together. So you have particles that collide together, glom on together through chemical static electricity processes. And as things that collisionally merge get bigger and bigger, they start to be able to gravitationally draw in material from around them. And this generates eddies in this disk. So, so the idea is everything is going around that central star, but as the gravity from that starting to form protoplanet grabs onto things, that material ends up swirling around the gravity of that protoplanet, creating a little spiral eddy. So one of the cool bits of image analysis that is being done to see this is if you have an otherwise smooth disk of material without these eddies of planet formation, um, you can go around the disk and see even amounts of light all the way around. So a planetless disk is a nice, smooth blob, kind of like a record. Now, when you get the eddies of the planets, the rest of the disk will have that nice, smooth, nothing going on over here characteristic. So you can take the areas of the disk that have no planets forming, get the essentially flat fielding to remove the disk subtract off the disk's light from where the planet is forming and get at being able to right, directly right, image right. the planet by removing the light of the disk. Right, right. So let's talk about some of the, the technique. You talked a bit about the technique here, but what are the instruments that are being used to observe these planets? And I think the part that's so amazing to me is up until this point, we know about about planets from these indirect detections. We detect how the light from the star dims. We detect how the star is moving back and forth thanks to the gravity of its planet. But in these situations, and we can only see the ones that are, that are on edge on, really. But in these situations, what we're seeing is the Holy Grail. We are seeing these systems face on at every angle that you can imagine. And we are seeing these tiny little... Um, uh, Frisbees, records, 
we are seeing these um, planetary disks under formation, which is absolutely incredible. So what are the instruments that they use to make these images? So the, the broad scale, uh, let's, let's zoom in on something faint with a high-resolution array of dishes spread out to give maximum resolution possible. That is being done by the Atacama Large Millimeter and Submillimeter Array down in Chile. This array of dishes, because they are spread out so much, gives them the necessary resolution to make out the detailed eddies in these systems. Now, while that's really the workhorse that's getting us the highest resolution data, it's not the only game in town. These systems can also be imaged in the infrared, where they give off the most light, because they're just warm gas, and warm gas is easiest to see in, well, warm light, infrared. So here we're starting to see people using Keck, Gemini, Subaru, very large telescope, all of these massive many meter telescopes that are scattered across the planet all have the ability to start to zoom in on these disks and and see different characteristics depending on the age and the size of the system. One of the more shocking things to me personally is I expected all the action to be going on down within 30 astronomical units of these stars because that's where all the action in our solar system is located. Right, yeah, you've got to get close. Yeah. Yeah. That's not the case. So, so what we're finding is there are planets appearing to form out hundreds of AUs away from these central stars, and it's the massive size of some of these disks that is allowing some of these telescopes to be able yeah. to see what's going on. And I think one of the things that, that is also added to that is, is this idea that right now the planets that astronomers are finding are the ones that are orbiting really close to their stars, the hot Jupiters, yeah. the super-Earths, the mini-Neptunes, but they, are, they have a very tight orbit around a, uh, a red, you know, an M-dwarf star, and it's things that are sometimes not similar at all to what we have in the solar system, and yet the the fainter planet the planets that, that take years to go around their star decades to go around the star like like saturn does right you would need 30 years to confirm its existence seeing under one of these standard techniques but in this case when you just look at the planetary disk from above you are seeing and you can go, oh, there's, there's going to be a planet forming right there at that orbit, at that speed, of probably that kind of mass. And then another planet over there. Like suddenly you're seeing this survey of planetary systems in a way that astronomers could only have hoped for, dreamed of years ago by looking at babies. It's opposed to looking at fully mature planetary systems. And, and one of the fascinating things that we're finding is somehow planets migrate in ways that we didn't know. We, we have the, the Nice model for our own solar system that says at some point Jupiter and Saturn were in a resonance with one another. They flung Uranus and Neptune out to much greater distances. They bloated out our solar system. But what we're finding as we look at these forming solar systems is things start way out in a lot of cases. And so the question starts to become, do they form way out and migrate in? Do they form at all distances and some stuff just gets lost? We still don't have those intermediate 
pictures. And part of the issue is with the infrared and the submillimeter, what we're looking at is disturbed disks of material. We can see the disks. We can see the gaps in the disks. We can see the eddies in the disks, which are either pointing to there is a nice fully formed planet in there that has already stripped out this gap, or there is a forming planet that has material spiraling into it. And then we can see the close-in planets using Doppler, using uh, transiting methods, what we can't see is any of the steps in between or any of the systems in between. Right. But I mean, the, uh, I mean, the most incredible thing with, um, with the Alma, right. Is that you're just, you'll see a picture they'll release. Oh, here's another 30 planetary disks. And you can see just the variations of all of these different ones. But the, the image that really blew me away last week is the one that came from the very large telescopes, espresso instrument did you see that picture that's so so uh, you know have you have you done any research into how the espresso instrument works i did a whole whole video on this if you know i'm gonna say your whole video is much better than my few paragraphs of reading oh sure so so the way it works so espresso so the the very large telescope is the is these four uh, in the you know the biggest telescope in the world is these four eight meter 8.4 meter class telescopes in chile and they act like one singular telescope with the resolution of their separation and they um and so one of them, they're equipped with this instrument called Espresso, and I forget the actual acronym, but its job is to see the um, essentially the reflected light that is coming off of planets that are orbiting around stars because of very specific, essentially the light, when it leaves the star and it bounces off the planet, it gets polarized. And so they're able to then remove all of the light from this image that isn't polarized and zero in on this reflected light of planets. And now multiple times they have been able to see, like literally resolve the blob that is the planet, the newly forming planet orbiting around the star within this protoplanetary disk. And it's still, you know, it's not an absolute slam dunk at this point. Like there's still some people that think that it could be explained by some other feature that it's, you know, there's just a knot of gas and dust that's in the protoplanetary disk. But we are at the point now where astronomers are starting to see these baby planets orbiting these other stars hundreds of light years away from us, which is just absolutely incredible. And and Expresso stands for the Echelle Spectrograph for Rocky Exoplanets and Stable Spectroscopic Observations, which just rolls right yeah, off the really tongue. Yeah, that really clears it up, right? Yeah. And and this this is the system where they've really been working to figure out how do we correct for disk versus not disk light to make sense of everything that has been seeing. And um, it's just starting to turn on. It was initially, uh, it, it started being offered to the community in March of 2018, which means yeah. we're only now beginning to see publications coming from it. So these couple of systems that they've already been able to identify, this is just a beginning Mm -hmm. of what it's going to be able to do. Yeah. And 
we're starting to innovate new instruments on multiple different systems. Subaru recently had its own detections that it's made. Yeah. Keck has it, its version as well. Yeah. Yeah. And what this shows is a desperation to figure out how do we fill in the picture book of solar systems forming. We we have those early images of the proplids. We see what's going on in the star forming regions. We see the disks. And then we see the fully formed systems, and and it's going to be systems like Expresso that, as they push their own limits, are going to allow us to start to fill in the pieces. And what we really want to be able to do, and we're not there yet, is do a statistical analysis and say, okay, we estimate this star is this age. We see its planets here. Let's look at all the stars we can of the same age, see how common is it for planets to be at different distances as a function of the mass, the formation place. There's going to be a lot of physics going into what causes solar systems to form in different ways. But it's only by seeing myriad versions of each different stage in the evolution that we're going to be able to build the same picture for planetary system formation that we already have for star formation. I can look at a star, and if I know its mass and its age, I can tell you pretty much everything else about it, because that's the dominant feature. If I can only measure its temperature and its luminosity, I can then get at its mass and tell you everything about how it formed and how it's going to die, unless it has a binary companion. We talked about that last week. Yeah, yeah. With planets, there's more. Well, I was thinking about just sort of the state of the of the research right now, right? Which is that when you think about what we can do, we know of 4,000 planets, some of which are in multiple planetary systems, but they are the extreme planets. They are the super, they are the mini Neptunes. They are the hot Jupiters. They are the ones that are orbiting and taking days at most a year to go around their star. And then on the other hand, we see these snapshots of, of protoplanetary Discs with all of the different parts, and as you say, going out to dozens of astronomical units away from their star. And we don't have a complete survey of what planetary systems look like today. We only have a snapshot of of the most extreme planets. It'd be like if it'd be like if you looked at the solar system, you could only find Mercury. And then use that as a way to describe the solar system when it is not an accurate description of the solar system. And so it's, it's being able to merge those two. And then adding on top of that this idea that they shift, that the planetary systems shift over time. And so you have to be able to predict that as well. But Espresso is really a prototype for the kind of instrument that's going to be installed on this next generation of telescopes, like the extremely large telescope. So what will that be able to t- show us? Well, so so the question often starts to become how much detail is there to be seen? Now, when you build bigger and bigger telescopes, it gives you higher and higher resolution. And I think the key factor with something like that is going to be with our current telescopes, the resolution that we have limits us to only being able to do detailed observations of things that are close by. And let's face it, there's only so much in the nearest volume of space. 
But as you build your telescopes bigger and bigger, you can start to get the same spatial resolution. You can start to get the same number of pixels per astronomical unit on the object that you're looking at at greater and greater distances. So the massive many tens of meter telescopes that are being worked on are going to allow us to see the nearest systems in greater resolution. Mm-hmm. And and it's unclear at this point. We have no idea what that would show us. Yeah. I mean, the hope is, like, like I know the extremely large telescope was built in theory with the capability with a coronagraph to block the light from the star and be able to resolve Earth-sized worlds orbiting sun-like stars in our neighborhood and you know you you, yes. you get one pixel like like it's not like we're going to see continents and stuff you just like like does exist is is yes. is what you get but still and, and we're looking more at nyquist sampling so more like two pixels but ooh luxurious <laughs> so civilized yeah so so being able to see at the the resolution that we're currently seeing um, objects like Keck's observations of PDS 70s protoplanets, being able to replicate what Keck and Subaru and these single mirror 8 to 10 meter class telescopes, what they're pulling off, being able to replicate those observations, but for a larger volume of space, will start to give us a statistical understanding of if you see this, then you see this. If you see this, then you see this, which will tell the story of how solar systems evolve that we can't get at right now. So what do you think are the biggest mysteries right now that, that, that we would love to have answered and that should be possible with the, you know, when you think about all of the tools at, at astronomers disposal, now you've got these incredible infrared telescopes, you've got next generation radio telescopes coming like things with a very large array. You've got, um, this next generation of the, of the giant telescopes, you know, the, the extremely large telescope, the Magellan telescope, you've got these space telescopes coming, James Webb, what answers, you know, what questions, what mysteries will start to get progress? So the story that I'm hoping to get an answer to is what is the typical distribution of rocky worlds to gaseous worlds as a function of the star's size. It's completely reasonable for us to to say, and this is so far held up by observations, that in general, tiny stars have mostly tiny worlds because they formed out of one nebula that could only be so big. If it had been bigger, it would have formed a bigger star. Bigger stars, we believe, are going to, in general, be more likely to have massive planets. But the question becomes, as that star gets bigger and bigger, and as it starts to become capable of adding more and more gas giants, what is the typical distribution as a function of star size of rocky worlds to gassy Mm -hmm. worlds? Now, that only tells us what formed there. We know even in our own solar system, our solar system formed with more worlds than what we have today. Yeah. Yeah, we ate them. We ate them. Well, yeah. it wasn't just us. Jupiter ate yeah. one. Uranus yeah. probably yeah. ate one. Venus clearly had a bad day. Yeah. And and so once you start to get at, well, how do things form? It becomes a question of how do things move around? Can we start to get an understanding of 
what is that story of do things form massively far out, migrate in until whatever's driving that migration turns off, and then in some cases get flung back out, as we see with the Nice model for our own solar system. So I, I want to first get at what is in general the the distribution of kinds of planets you see as a function of star size. Right. And then I want to get at where do they form and where do they go on average? And so I can imagine this situation where you've got like, like in one situation, each portion of the disk nicely forms a planet the star clears away the the dust and then the planets are mostly locked in place and it's a very you know and then there's some leftover material that bo- heavily bombards everything around and and you're done and that's what we learned in high school and right. that is yeah, not yeah, true yeah yeah and then the other idea is just this mayhem where you've got multiple planets forming in inappropriate areas they are crashing into each other they are flipping each other upside down they are they are shifting inward and outward and you've got you know that 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 in fact the formation of a planet like the earth only came through just rain, constant rain of fire and you got a nice planet then suddenly it's you know consumes another mars sized planet and now it's you know it's all molten lava again right and it just happens again and again and again just imagine so the chaos and mayhem and it has serious implications for even the formation of life and and for all we know our solar system may have originally formed with 20 to 30 (laughs) objects that we would call planets yeah and then they all one by one just just battled it out to the to the death some got flung away, a muamua style. Yeah. And, uh, and, and we also don't know if we capture other worlds. I mean, for all we know, that ninth planet that shows up in mathematical simulations of, of the outer minor bodies, that, that could be something we stole ruthlessly from another solar system. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we it's- don't know. And, and I think that for people who are who are watching, like if, as you watch the news over the coming years, as these new instruments come online, as these new telescopes, this is one of the primary questions in astronomy that we should see well resolved in our lifetimes is that we should see in, enormous numbers of planetary systems discovered, enormous numbers of protoplanetary systems discovered, and we should see the you know the statistical analysis of this get to the point where we do know the answers and, to these questions and then you look at you just but and back to your original point right imagine looking at a at a yellow dwarf star and going i think we know what how many planets are there now let's just confirm that they're there and as near as we can tell while it's going to be more complicated than stellar evolution we can already see there is a clean relationship between if you have too little metallicity in the area that formed the star. So globular cluster-like environments, no planets, more metals, more planets. We're already seeing that scientific relationship documented. We are already seeing documented that solar systems in the process of trying to form are distinctly different in low-density and high-density environments. So we're narrowing in on the complicated physics that describes planetary formation. 
once we figure out what it takes to get the planets, now we need to figure out how they evolve through their own interactions. And yeah. it's it's I've decided we're no longer in a golden age of astronomy. We definitely need to upgrade to that platinum card. <laughs> Are we in platinum age? That's yeah, awesome. I think I we're platinum it. age. Yeah. Perfect. All right. On that note, Pamela, do you have some names for us this week? I do. As always, our show is supported through the generous contributions of a myriad of individuals that make what we do possible. This show, it's not just Fraser and I that make this happen. We rely on Richard Drum to do our audio editing. We have Ali Pelfrey, who's maintaining our YouTube channel. We have Beth Johnson, who's putting up our show notes. And we're able to pay these people a a decent wage for the amazing work that they do for us. And we only do this because of you. Today, I would like to thank the Patreon uh, supporters at patreon.com slash astronomycast, Omar Del Riviero, Brent Kernop, Tim Garish, Arthur Latz Hall, William Andrews, Jack Mudge, Mark Grundy, William Lauer, Jeremy Kerwin, Bruno Lights, Michelle Cullen, J. Alex Alexanderson, Dustin Ralph, Joe Wilkinson, Marco Erasi, Mark Stephen Rasnuck, Brian Kilby, Jessica Feltz, Gabriel Galfin, Jordan Young, Burry Galwin, Burko Roland, Ramji Anamathu, Andrew Palestro, David Trug, Brian Cagle, the giant nothing, Dan Lightman, Laura Kettleson, Robert Palesmo, Corey Diwali, Joss Cunningham, and Paul Jarman. Thank you, all of you, for everything you do to allow us to do everything we do. And thank you, Pamela. We'll see you next week. See you next week. Bye-bye, everyone. You are listening to the 365 Days of Astronomy podcast. The 365 Days of Astronomy podcast is produced by the Planetary Science Institute. Audio post production by Richard Drum. Bandwidth donated by Libsyn.com and Wizard Media. You may reproduce and distribute this audio for non-commercial purposes. This show is made possible thanks to the generous donations of people like you. Please consider supporting our show on Patreon.com forward slash 365 Days of Astronomy and get access to bonus content. After 10 years, the 365 Days of Astronomy podcast is entering its second decade of sharing important milestones in space exploration and astronomy discoveries. Join us and share your story. Until tomorrow, goodbye. Goodbye.